0: Bookstack with Richard Aldis, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on March the 18th, Azar Nafisi on Reading Dangerously and the Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Coming up on the show today, Sebastian Malaby, author of the new book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. Uh, Sebastian, welcome to Bookstack great to be with you. So what is the power law?
1: So the power law is a bit like the 80-20 rule that people talk about. So if you think about academic citations, 80% of the citations go to 20% of the papers. Um, If you think about um, returns in venture capital portfolios, 80% of the returns will be generated by 20% of the startups that receive an investment. It's different from stock market investing, where most investments that get done have a return that is around about the average. So if you plot them on a chart, you see a bell curve. With uh, power law returns in, in early-stage startups, instead you get um, you know a whole bunch that really do nothing, they go bust, uh, and then you get a few, a minority, that just shoot up and do 10 times the money invested or more.
0: And I think at some stage you quote uh, Peter Thiel, the venture capitalist, as making the point that, you know, very often the project that actually comes off is likely to be more than worth the rest of an entire portfolio put together.
1: Exactly. Or to use another metaphor, it's not a, a home run business. It's a grand slam business.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of one of the things that really interests me as well, and you, you start the book with this, is that there's, a, there's an element with these investments that it's not just about making money. For example, the, the man behind Coastal Ventures, there's an element of the evangelist about him. He believes that any social problem can be solved through invention and through investment.
1: I think the interesting thing is that the evangelism and the money-making are aligned in venture capital, once you understand the power law and you understand that um, a minority of bets are going to generate all your returns, but those bets are going to have to be pretty weird, pretty extraordinary, pretty, you know, audacious to have a chance of being so different that they really disrupt things and generate that sort of 10x plus return. You, you, You have to dream big. There's no point doing something incremental. Because that, by definition, won't be differentiated from everything else that other people are doing. And you won't get, you know, the chance to charge a good margin for the product because there's too much competition. If you do something really wacky, audacious out of left field, like inventing a hamburger, uh, which, you know, is red but turns brown when you put it on the barbecue and emits that, you know, sizzling steak frying kind of smell but has zero meat in it. I mean, that is, that is a big leap. At least it was when the idea was pitched. You've got to back improbable ideas, or in the case of uh, one company, it's called Impossible Foods, in order to break out from the pack.
0: Yeah and that i mean that that example of patrick brown se- seems to almost perfectly encapsulate what you're trying to put get across here in the book it's the story that you start the book with uh, this character who seems to have an idea that is completely crazy but also that belief that if you can find a vegetarian burger that tastes better than a real burger then essentially the free market will take care of the rest
1: That's right. So it's the audacity of the idea that um, attracts the Silicon Valley venture capitalist. If you think about the same person, Patrick Brown was a geneticist at Stanford before he started Impossible Foods. Um, If you imagine a similar person having the same idea, you know, let's say in Berlin, he would have been less likely to find a venture capitalist just around the corner, a short bike ride away, who would back the idea. But, you know, In Silicon Valley, there are venture capitalists tripping over each other. And so it's a machine for manufacturing courage. When you have the idea, somebody's going to help you to do it.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that's really striking, actually, in the book, that a lot of the book is actually about networks. Um, You know, perhaps you don't have to live in Silicon Valley to be a venture capitalist, but a lot of them do. They all seem to know each other. It's a kind of a club in a way.
1: That's right, and I think you know there's a there's a big literature about how clusters can be productive, whether that's a financial cluster in New York or a, a movie cluster in Hollywood, uh, or a tech cluster in in Silicon Valley. And the reason why these clusters are productive is that people bump into each other, they exchange ideas, they can join each other's projects very easily because they're geographically uh, contiguous. Uh, you know, the joke goes that in Silicon Valley you can change jobs without changing your parking lot because, you know, the other startup you want to join is in the same building. Um, And and, and that circulation of ideas and people and capital is what generates all these multiple experiments on inventing the future. Uh, And I think that's why Silicon Valley has been so productive.
0: And, uh, you know, that that idea of networks and, and, and working like that seems to go right back to Arthur Rock, one of the earliest venture capitalists that you talk about in the book.
1: Yes, I mean, his tactic was to get to know um, a group of technologists who initially founded uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, sort of the grandfather of all the semiconductor business in Silicon Valley, but then they spun off and went to, on to found other things, for example, Intel. Um, and he followed the path of those technologists that he backed for you know, a couple of decades. And that got him you know, the kind of knock-on network effects meant that he could back other companies. Another example more recently would be the PayPal mafia. So you know a group of driven and clever people do the company PayPal um, in the early 2000s. Uh, And then they go on to found other companies such as LinkedIn uh, or Yelp uh, and and so forth. And so um, these networks are pervasive in Silicon Valley. And the people who really make the ideas circulate, who are financially incentivized to do so, are the venture capitalists. Because they're always looking for the next deal, to meet the next entrepreneur, to, to meet the next three engineers who might be hired by the entrepreneur that they backed last week. Um, so they second it.
0: And you know one of the one of the lessons that, uh, that that you take away is not to be put off by appearances. I, I, I suppose that was something that came across in the uh, the film The Social network. But essentially these venture capitalists have to trust their instincts. You have one venture capitalist writing a check for Google before Google even has a bank account to put that check into
1: yeah right exactly uh, you know uh, he, he, this is andy bettelsheim who was a sort of storied engineer founder of sun microsystems back in the 1980s and then had done other companies and when he met the uh two google founders uh larry and sergey he was so taken by the search engine um which that he just you know ran to his porsche got his checkbook came back wrote the check and they said but we don't have a company yet and he said no problem when you have a company stick the check in there um and so there's this sort of impulsive thing which sounds crazy but at the same time again if it's all about grand slam power law outsized returns you sort of have to be willing to take a big risk um to to have a chance of capturing those things and at the same time if you lose you're only losing as they say one times your money if you win you could make 50 times your money if you lose it's only one time so it's asymmetric and that encourages you to write the check even before the company is founded.
0: And it is interesting how they do, these venture capitalists—they tend not to back people with track records. That uh, you give various examples of this. That a company like Amazon does not come out of Macy's or Walmart. Uh, that disruptors tend to be really smart people who come almost from nowhere. They're completely outside of the current system
1: again it comes back to the power law if you're going to rethink all the assumptions um, in a particular industry from the ground up like elon musk has done with um, electric cars it, it probably is the case that you're not going to come from inside the system because you've kind of bought into all those ways of doing things and the radical change the radical disruption is more likely to come from a clever person who starts with a blank slate from outside
0: and it's kind of interesting from your own perspective as well. You've written very successful books on leaders at the World Bank and the Federal Reserve. And, and you know, generally there's been a lot written on markets and on corporations. But, but this middle ground between those two venture capitalist networks that you've described there uh, seems to have, have, have received less attention. Not the companies themselves, but actually the venture capitalists that, capitalists that, that give them the money in the first place. What, why is that, do you think?
1: I think the venture capitalists have always been the coaches and the entrepreneurs have been the players, the stars on the field, to use a sporting analogy. And and, and the VCs have been okay about staying in the background. Um, But at the same time, I'm convinced that they've been way more important than they pretend uh, in the sense that if you look at where... Ideas come from, actually, they come from all over the place. You know you take an idea like the Netscape browser, which unleashed the internet revolution. It was invented in Illinois by Mark Andreessen when he was a graduate student um, at, at, at the computer science program there. Um, but then it was commercialized successfully, not in Illinois, but in Silicon Valley. and there are just tons of examples like this where ideas can be hatched anywhere, but the business culture that generates a product that actually changes your life and my life, that comes out of a startup in Silicon Valley. And so you ask the question, so why? What's special about Silicon Valley? The answer is this abundance of venture capital that is willing to back improbable ideas.
0: And and is it still Silicon Valley today? I, I know there's been a lot of talk, for example, about somewhere like Austin, Texas seeming to be on the rise and you know possibly even as somewhere that that may replace Silicon Valley, uh, Elon Musk being a good example of basing himself there.
1: Well, I think what's happened in the last sort of five or 10 years is that the secret source of how you do these power law bets has been bottled and spread around the place. So geographically, um, you know, it went to China, there's been a huge success in the technology success sector in, in China. It's gone to India, um, it's gone to other places within the United States, as you're saying, Austin, Miami, New York, uh, sort of revived version of venture capital in Boston, which had an older tradition, there was less risk taking, but now I think it's become more aggressive. Um, and it's, 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 you know, even Latin America, so it's, it's really spreading around. Uh, And I think Silicon Valley may lose um, its sort of quasi-monopoly on innovation, has already done, in fact. Uh, But it's not going to be, I don't think, eclipsed by somewhere like Austin because there's so much sort of incumbent um, money and ideas and just talented people who've got the experience of growing startups from nothing uh, to huge. Uh, and that the biggest concentration of those people still remains in Silicon Valley.
0: So it's not that Silicon Valley has kind of become the establishment that the venture capitalists were rebelling against or bucking the system against, um, that it's, it's, it hasn't become the establishment?
1: I think it's a self-regenerating establishment. You know, it, it, huh. it's sufficiently it's internally critical of itself that it manages to come up with new directions.
0: What about the the social purpose of uh, venture capitalists? I mean, we've seen uh, examples recently, like Uber and WeWork, that uh, suggest that there have been some problems. There are issues surrounding things like price, uh, price gouging and poor treatment of workers, lack of transparency, and that kind of thing. What what do you what do you make of the the darker side of venture capitalism, if you like?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question because I am very pro the very you know the early stage startup. Um, investing, which I think you know allows people with ideas to really try them out, and that's basically a good thing for progress. But you're right that once these startups turn into bigger companies, they need to sort of grow up and they they have enough impact on society that they need to start behaving. Uh, and I think there's a bit of a, a trough in the life cycle of these companies where right at the point where they need to start behaving, pressure on them to behave properly diminishes and that's because as the entrepreneur you know um, becomes successful and has built a company that's worth several billion dollars naturally he or she normally he uh, becomes more arrogant and less inclined to take advice from other people and starts misbehaving in some cases not all but in some cases and the venture investors whose job it might be to kind of rein them in and, and and tell them to behave better have often lost power by this point because a different type of investor, a growth investor it's called, has come in after the venture investors put in hundreds of millions of dollars and kind of taken the ownership a bit away from the early venture capitalists. And so Uber is a great example. The original venture investor, Bill Gurley of Benchmark, was trying to get Travis Kalanick, the boss of Uber, to start taking sexual harassment more seriously, start evading the law less, (laughs) taking financial controls more seriously. He was making all these points, but Travis Kalanick was saying, listen, I've just raised $3.5 billion from Saudi Arabia who don't care about that stuff. Uh, I'm not listening to you. And so the crisis uh, developed and Uber behaved uh, worse and worse until Kalanick was finally shoved out.
0: Which is why people have begun talking about the tech industrial complex and so on.
1: Yeah, and I think my plea would be that, you know, it's it's quite right for society to take a view on big tech. And some of what big tech does is, you know, bigly good. I mean, it's great that I can search information um, as I want to on Google, but the rest of it may be bigly bad. And, you know, it's not good that there's a monopoly power. That's not good that, you know privacy might be invaded, that fake news might be spread ahead of elections, and so forth. And society is absolutely right to to express that position and there should be regulation and so forth. It doesn't mean that one should clamp down or be skeptical of venture capital, because the early stage stuff where the new ideas really get incubated is not having those negative effects. It's basically just developing applied science. And if you don't like big tech, Well, small tech, which challenges the power of big tech, is the answer.
0: You mentioned uh, before, uh, I think you said uh, he, because they mostly are he. I mean, uh, venture capitalism does seem to be something of a monoculture. You talk about this in the book that uh, women are underrepresented around 15, 16 percent. Racial diversity uh, is even worse, around 3 percent of uh, investment partners. Uh, Why do you think that is and, and what kind of impact does it have?
1: Yeah, you're quite right to raise this issue. And those numbers of both uh, women and African-American representation are not only you know, below the share of the workforce, they're, they're way below the share that you would get if you looked at a sort of benchmark industry, you know, finance or law or medicine or whatever. All of these things are more diverse in their, in their senior ranks. So why is venture so bad? I, I think it's because, you know, Other types of finance, there are quantitative metrics when you make an investment, and so you look at the price-earnings ratio or whatever. And and when you have objective criteria, you don't have to fall back on subjective feelings. And in venture capital, there is no price-earnings ratio because there's no earnings, right? The company is just being formed. And um, all you've got is two-legged mammals who walk into your office with a dream, and you have to make a judgment on them. then you fall back on your kind of gut instinct, and that's where your prejudice is hiding. And so I think people do tend, unless they really make an effort, to back people, invest in people that kind of look like them. And it's only been in the last two, three years with the uh, there's a high-profile sexual harassment suit raised against uh, a famous venture capital company, Kleiner Perkins. Um, which brought awareness about sexual harassment and gender uh, politics. And then, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, heightened awareness of black representation. And I think those things are starting to change how venture capital partnerships recruit but it's early days and they need need to make you know, more of an effort.
0: There is a, there's a national security element uh, to all of this as well, that uh, a lot of China's technological digital revolution began with uh, American venture capitalism, uh, capital. Um, around the beginning of the 21st century, you show how they essentially start being able to do it themselves. Um, and it really takes time for people to understand what the implications of that are. Uh, were for american interest not least in uh, military areas and areas such as ai yeah
1: that's right i mean the early chinese digital companies uh, contrary to myth uh, were not backed by the chinese government they were backed by american venture investors so you know Ch- alibaba baidu tencent sina sohu netease all these companies um, were sort of set up as if they were valley companies And that was very important to their early success and you know u.s investors did well but uh, of course the chinese have caught on quickly and they know how to do venture capital themselves now and as you say um, the next generation of companies includes you know the biggest commercial drone maker dji and you know my son who is uh, works in film has his dji drone because that's the cheapest and best kind of drone for doing aerial photography and he thinks it's great but the Pentagon has a slightly different view of DJI drones um, because it's made in China and you don't know what's in the software and maybe that surveillance that my son is doing for purposes of making a film <laughs> might have other purposes from the Chinese perspective. So, uh, you know, this is this is a serious issue. Um, commercial technologies often have military applications and I think the US is waking up to that and needs to... Uh, get serious about seeing its own venture capital sector as a sort of facet of national power. Because if you think about American power without Intel or without NVIDIA or without some of the other leading tech companies, it would be diminished because, you know, there are semiconductors in weapons systems. You need AI to build the next generation of weapons. So um, if China were to get ahead in those technologies, it would have implications for for American power
0: a lot of the the most famous examples of uh, these uh, companies these impossible companies that have taken off uh, thanks to an, an initial venture capital uh, investment uh, coincided with globalization um kind of I suppose um, Google Facebook uh, would be the, the most obvious examples I mean when you look at something like the war in uh, war in Ukraine which is going on now and how that disrupts global markets how it's going to, how it's disrupting uh, commerce and trade and uh, sub- supply lines and so on. What what do you think that's going to mean for venture capitalists today?
1: Well, I think markets generally are going to be more segmented. You know, it's going to be less attractive for business to move goods across borders um, where there's a choice because you never know when those borders might be closed down, either for geopolitical reasons or maybe because there's another pandemic. Um, you know, a bunch of things have taught that if you can keep your supply chain closer to home, you know, that's an advantage. So you see that particularly in areas of of tech like semiconductors where the Chinese are now desperate to develop their own indigenous semiconductor um, business so that they don't rely on American imports of, um, of clever chips. And, you know, they're struggling a bit with that. For the moment, chip design is partly uh, dominated by the U.S., partly there's some in Europe. Um, the machines that engrave the chips are made, the, the leading company in the world is in Holland. Um, uh, the actual chip making, um, the leading country in the world is Taiwan. Um, and China is sort of not really at the forefront of all that. And and that it's that kind of strategic uh, input, um, which is sort of like the new oil. Uh, all countries want to be Uh, Self-sufficient. I don't think it matters so much for consumer tech because if you're building, you know, some company like, you know, Google or um, Facebook or Apple or whatever, um, some of those markets have been more nationally segmented anyway because of language barriers and what have you. Um, And I think that's less less existential. I think it's really with semiconductors and and maybe router gear. sort of the the intelligent hardware is where it really bites.
0: And I wonder if, if in some cases, with a, with a crisis, whether venture capitalism is exactly what we need, because uh, it is uh, by its nature disruptive. And so, I mean, if we, we think of the, the obvious example during the pandemic, Moderna, uh, one of those moonshot vaccines, uh, was a Harvard spin off that had provided, that, uh, that had, had benefited from uh, a venture, venture capitalist uh, investment.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Moderna was a, a great illustration of the power of venture capital. Another one was that, you know, the, the kind of surprise success story in vaccine procurement and deployment was Britain, um, you know, a, a medium-sized country that's not always brilliantly run. <laughs> but uh, the government cleverly uh, chose a venture capitalist to run the procurement efforts of vaccines for the, the government. And because this venture capitalist, um, Kate Bingham, was you know, extremely good at working with industry and knew how to partner with industry in a way that they would find attractive. She was able to you know, sign contracts early for a, a kind of hedged portfolio of different vaccine development efforts. So some were mRNA, some were not mRNA. She kind of cleverly spread her bets. And then she sort of said things like, well, I know you're going to have to go through clinical trials we will you know create a database of people that you can do the trial with um so we'll be your partner in rolling this out faster so she did various clever things to make um, britain an attractive place to sign a contract with and that's why britain had maybe barring israel the earliest and most efficient vaccine rollout in the world.
0: So the book is The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. It's written by my guest, Sebastian Malaby, and published by Penguin Press. Uh, But for now, Sebastian, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack.
1: Fun talking with you.
0: Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Rusick. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldis, saying thanks for listening.